0: Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James. And this is episode 40. We're going to sell out and we're going to do Iron Man, the entire trilogy from the MCU go with Marvel, man. Let's go Marvel because Iron Man is, you know, the heart of the Avengers franchise. You know, none of it would have been possible without Tony Stark and Robert Downey Jr. and Jon Favreau and them taking a chance on this character and this type of movie. And it really laid the foundation for what the MCU would become. And not just the Avenger films and everything, but also all the Marvel TV shows and all these side characters and side superheroes and even the smaller superheroes and just Marvel's expansion in general is all thanks to Iron Man. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at movieposters.com. Use coupon code Raiders15 for 15% off your order today. This episode is also brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. If you like our podcast and our content, the best thing you can do to support us is subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. We're also operating mostly word of mouth, so please share us with your movie friends, your other friends, your family members, anybody you think would love to hear a new movie show and a great movie podcast, let them know about us. Leaving five-star reviews is incredibly beneficial to help us get seen by new people, so please do that if you can. We also have a Patreon where you can support us monthly, where members get special perks like personalized videos, personalized messages, and our top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast to be immortalized forever as always spoilers are abound and this was marvel's uh, first self-financed feature independently and before this any kind of superhero marvel movie what happened was marvel would sell the rights to different production studios and companies and then they would make their own films based on the characters they own the rights to and generally the contracts were like somewhere between three to seven years and that's why sony would turn out spider-man movies over and over again because if sony or another company would not make a a a film adaptation of the character they purchased, then they would lose the rights. So that's why you would often see like so many X-Men movies being turned out, so many Spider-Man movies turned out, because those studios didn't want to lose the rights to the characters that they purchased, purchased from Marvel. And Marvel was unhappy with a lot of the ways that their characters were being portrayed on film, so they wanted to make their own independent films Uh, without the involvement of any other studios. And then this is the first foray into it. Yeah, so like X-Men, that was 20th Century Fox. And also Marvel was always a production company that assisted in all the films. And then... um like you just said, Sony for Spider-Man. So Marvel hadn't really been making their own movies with this current MCU. And this is like the Infinity War saga. That's like the, the realm we're operating. That's what we're talking about with Marvel producing their own movies. Yeah, phase one, phase two, and phase three. And because then- obviously there were Marvel movies being made, but again, different production companies. Yeah, exactly. So Marvel was just connected and they owned the rights, but they weren't actually making the movies. They had just sold the rights to the characters. In Iron Man, you know, 2008, this is coming off of watching Spider-Man success with that trilogy Batman Begins, and then The Dark Knight came out uh, a few months after this movie. So, spy- superhero movies and comic book movies had been popular. Obviously, Blade was very successful. The X Men movies were very successful. But the Incredibles, like, yeah. But in terms, of, yeah, The Incredibles. But in terms of like the massive success that Iron Man brought, because again, it was before The Dark Knight a few months. So, The Dark Knight obviously made a billion dollars, pretty much. But Iron Man, I think it pulled like 530. So it Mm -hmm. showed again this massive possibility of success that these comic book heroes had. And also right from the get-go, Marvel had the idea of creating this joined universe. It wasn't like Iron Man was successful and then they were going to build off of it. They had the plans from the beginning, uh, which set them apart because the Spider-Man movies are great. But you couldn't imagine Spider-Man being involved with any other superheroes. It just wouldn't feel right. And I love that original Spider-Man trilogy. Spider-Man 1 and 2 are so good. But yeah, you're right. I couldn't think of like any other superhero coming into that world at all. Because just like the Dark Knight trilogy, it's its own being. It's its own thing. And the thing with Iron Man was, I personally, I don't think I knew of Iron Man at all before this film came out. I know that Iron Man was still a, a fan favorite in the comic book world. But I don't think I had any familiarity with the character at all. And so, it was similar to Guardians of the Galaxy where I never even heard of this person. And I think it was... a uh, Still, even though he was mostly unknown to the general audiences, it was a, a great choice for the first start for the first uh, film in this franchise to to start with Iron Man rather than any other characters. Yeah, I knew of Iron Man. I didn't know much about him. I barely like recognized the name Tony Stark until you know this movie started getting traction that it was getting made. And Tony Stark's in Iron Man's first appearance came in 1963 um, in a comic book, and then. Anthony Edward Stark is the son of a wealthy industrialist and head of Stark Industries, Howard Stark and Maria Stark. He was a boy genius. He entered MIT at the age of 15 to study engineering and later received master's degrees in engineering and physics. After his parents were killed in a car accident, he inherited his father's company. And so we have this great origin story in the first Iron Man film, which kind of even takes the entire trilogy for Iron Man and Tony Stark to kind of come to fruition as as a joint character. Yeah, and I think the the first act of Iron Man is very akin to Batman Begins, the first act, where it's an incredibly engrossing story. And I think that Favreau and Downey knocked it out of the park with the introduction to this character, the way they told the story and in the series of flashbacks, as well as the, the way that Tony um, created Iron Man, the circumstances surrounding it. I think it was a fascinating origin story. And I think that although the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk had come out that year as well, uh, a couple months before it, that was still, even though it was kind of, I think, isn't Downey in the post credit scene in The Incredible Hulk, I think? I think so, yeah. But still, that was a, still a Fox production, so it wasn't uh, Marvel independently producing The Incredible Hulk. They were still a joint venture with Fox, so Iron Man really was the original uh, MCU film. and Initially, Iron Man was a vehicle for Stan Lee to explore Cold War themes in his comic books, and particularly the role of American technology and industry to fight communism and all those reimaginings of Iron Man have transitioned from basically that Cold War era of the 60s and early 70s to uh, contemporary matters of time and, and modern portraits of like the American inventor, like kind like of N- like Nikola Tesla, Alexander Graham Bell, the Wright Brothers and Thomas Edison. So it has that great American inventor aesthetic to the character, but also it has a lot of Howard Hughes in it in terms of the, the celebrity nature of the character. Um, the multifaceted skills they have, whereas Tony is an entrepreneur, an inventor, a, a, a chemist. A, he's an engineer. He, he's a, he, can, he can do anything. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is also brought to you by Manscaped, the leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your comfort, obsesses over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. Manscaped has been super generous I and mean, sent us their performance packages, sent us T-shirts, their boxer briefs, Tons of grooming equipment. We got their lawnmower, which is the best clipper blit buzzer I've ever used in my life. I've been using those CVS crappy things that cost $12 for a decade. And these this thing is phenomenal. It has a light so you can see in the dark if you have to. It's got It's waterproof. You can groom in the shower. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. This is the perfect gift this holiday season for any of the men in your life brothers, cousins, uncles, fathers, friends. This is a great gift. We'd love and we'd all freak out if we got anything from Manscaped. I highly recommend checking it out again. It's the holiday season. Use this coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for twenty percent off and free shipping. One of my favorite things about Tony Stark is the fact that before he becomes Iron Man, he's kind of a villain. You know, he has a lot of villainous qualities. He's a, a he's just a, a pretty bad guy. He has low morals. Yeah, and I mean, he's a war profiteer. He he, he he's an weapons and arms manufacturer, and so he he makes. Uh, billions in profit over over death and destruction, and he doesn't seem to care at all about it. All he cares about his is himself and his success and his celebrity and his status. And he has a lot of bad qualities, and he is very much uh, a villain in the world, you would say. Which is probably why our Downey, Robert Downey Jr., was perfectly cast as Tony Stark because. You know, Downey, you know, he seems like a great guy, but he also has a very troubled past. He has a lot of bad habits and and also questionable moral decisions in his life. And like Tony, he's lived his entire life, his entire adult life in the public eye. He's experienced immense highs as an actor and person and also depressing lows as an actor and a person. But Downey's a special actor. If it weren't for his drug addiction and his criminal behavior in the 90s, this man would have been the biggest actor in the world 15 years before Iron Man because... In 1992, Downey was in that movie Chaplin, where he played Charlie Chaplin. He's sensational in that movie. He got nominated for an Oscar, I don't know how he didn't win. But his performance in that will blow your hair back. And you could tell. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to say for it? That's where Bank of America can help. watching it that he was a movie star, a mega movie star in the making. Yeah, and he was in one of the most loved uh, romantic comedies in the 80s, The the Pickup Artist, and uh, he was just a breakout star in that role, and he was one of the biggest stars, up and coming, rising stars of that time, until he obviously fell down the mountain of drug addiction yeah and he got arrested in 1999 and served 201 days in prison in actual prison we're not talking about movie star prison famous people prison rich prison we're talking about doing real time with real criminals and he obviously had a target on his back for being a rich famous movie star and good looking and he had to actually leave prison for surgery one time because he got beaten up so bad and he had a ton of facial scarring and injuries. So he had a target on his back and he, he did his time, but he got released after I think it was 201 days. He even had a, a lot of bad instances uh, of moments with the press where uh, oftentimes if you read an article about an actor in like Esquire or GQ or, or Vanity Fair, what happens is the journalist who writes that article, they s- usually spend a few hours with that celebrity and then they that's what they write the story based on. That experience they have with a celebrity, and there's one instance where Downey had to do, uh, had to meet with a journalist to for some kind of magazine. They were writing a story on him, and he met the he he met the journalist in nothing but his boxers and a bathrobe, with a a bottle of scotch and a handgun on him, and the journalist got incredibly scared and ran off. Yeah, you can only imagine the amount of or the roles that he missed out on or got turned down because of his risky behavior, and obviously all these studios had to take out high risk insurance policies on him every time they took him on a role because they knew about his behavior yeah this is one of the reasons why when he did get clean it was hard for him to find him work for a few years because every film they what they do is they take out insurance on the lead actors and what the insurance does is in case something happens like the lead actor has some kind of accident or um, something happens an illness or anything that which would uh, prevent the actor from continuing making the film uh the insurance um grants the production money so that they can refilm the scenes that they need to, maybe with the new actor or whatever the situation calls for. So it provides them with money in case something, some kind of emergency happens. And with Downey, um, since he had such a bad track record, the insurance um, required to get him in a movie was so expensive most film productions did they didn't want him involved because it was just going to cost way too much just to insure him for the production yeah so he had some minor roles his biggest role after prison was kiss kiss bang bang with which Shane black made and wrote and he actually wrote and directed iron man 3 Mm -hmm. and then um he was in zodiac which he was awesome in. so fincher cast him in that and that was one of his Big roles before Iron Man, obviously coming in 2007. And again, Downey's perfect as Tony Stark because just like Downey is like the antithesis or what you think of of a huge movie star, Tony Stark is the exact opposite of what you think of as a superhero. They have very similar qualities, and which shows why he's so perfect in this role. It's similar to Ben Affleck and Gonger, where they've lived the experiences of the character they're playing, so no one can relate to them more than these actors can, and that's why I think even though the studio. They wanted to pursue actors like Tom Cruise and Clive Owen for the role of Tony Stark, but John Favreau, to his credit, uh, he always felt that Downey was uh, the perfect choice for the role because of his life and his experiences, and he would bring that to the character. And Marvel, didn't ha- Marvel wanted nothing to do with Robert Downey Jr. They had no interest in hiring him, and Favreau really had to fight for him, and he convinced Marvel executives to... To let him film a screen test with Downey as Tony Stark. And so they filmed the screen test and showed it to the Marvel executives. And when the executives saw uh, Downey in character as Tony Stark. They finally understood and, and agreed with Favreau that Downey was perfect for the role. And Downey obviously pulls off a kind of an impossible task. Where he had to make this egocentric weapons dealer. Womanizing asshole just very selfish person into a very likable character which he did and he obviously became the most beloved character in the mcu i mean uh, tony stark on paper before he turns into iron man is just a complete asshole but then he ends up becoming uh, the character you love most of all yeah he transcends every other character no matter how good captain america is in terms of having such a good heart or thor and his powers and the hulk and his his likability and it's really just his character flaws that make Tony Stark so likable, his alcoholism, his his abandonment, his his traumatic past from his parents' death and his and all the questions his father left behind for him and it's all these things in his that really make you relate to him and feel empathy for the character despite the hubris that he displays and the complete asshole mentality and the sarcasm and the quips which are hysterical though. Yeah, and that's what Downey really brought to the character was the, the dialogue and, and the personality because this film was very similar to Gladiator. Uh, which we talked about on that podcast, where uh, they they had just the action sequences and set pieces written, uh, and they they knew the overall arc of the of the story, but they didn't have much dialogue written. And so Downey, Favreau, and Gwyneth Paltrow would meet every morning before filming each scene, and they would they would work out the dialogue and write each morning as they were filming. And so I think what this did was. Downey and Favreau injected their humor and their personality into the character of Tony Stark and the actual tone of the film. I think uh, there are a few other directors attached to this film, and I think it would have been a little bit more serious um, and taken it a little too seriously and a little grittier, whereas these two brought a lot of comedy and levity to the film, which I think set the stage for the overall tone of the Marvel movies going forward, where I think they created the tone, Favreau and Downey, this comedic, uh, fun... Uh, sarcastic tone uh, to go along with the the action and the drama which they obviously took and put into every single uh, marvel film afterward it makes sense for his character too because tony stark of all superheroes as iron man he takes himself the least seriously for for the first decade of the mcu compared to the other characters and that's that makes sense because tony stark his character doesn't take anything really seriously besides weapons manufacturing so it makes sense that they would do that, and Downey gives those amazing sarcastic one-liners, film through film through film. That kind of laid a blueprint for a lot of the dialogue in every Avengers movie, especially yeah. like Thor Ragnarok, big time. Like that's basically, <laughs> basically if you close your eyes and like pretend Downey was saying it, it's like all his dialogue. <laughs> and I think uh, I think Iron Man is great because he reminds me of Batman, where uh, neither of them have superpowers, uh, and they both use the the their wealth and their power to. To create a superhero, and I think that's it's always more relatable for a human to be the lead rather than someone like even someone like Thor or the Hulk. I know the Hulk is part human, but still, it's kind of a little too fantastical. And I mean, Steve Rogers—he's yeah. a human, but he's superhuman. superhuman. So just to have a normal man as the leader of this group makes it more relatable, and I think that's why it was smart to choose him first. Yeah, and the similarities between Tony Stark and Iron Man and Bruce Wayne. And Batman are, are almost, there's a ton of them. And obviously, both genius billionaire orphans turned superheroes. So one can only imagine what Elon Musk would be doing right now if he didn't have a family. If his family were was murdered in front of him. Yeah, he'd definitely he'd be a superhero be Batman. at night. <laughs> he'd be like Tesla Man. <laughs> and then um, Tony and Bruce were both shaped from their past. <laughs> that was a good Tesla one. Tesla Man. <laughs> Tony and Bruce were both shaped from their past. Bruce Wayne was shaped from the trauma of his parents being murdered in front of him by a petty criminal. And then Tony was also shaped by his parents' death of a supposed car crash, but he eventually learned that it was the Winter Soldier that killed him. Spoiler alert, even though I said spoiler but afterwards. (laughs) Everyone's seen them. Yeah, you all know what happened. Uh, Both had immense expectations to fill with their IQ and their family histories. At a young age, Bruce decided to take his vengeance out on the criminals of Gotham City. Tony went in more of that playboy direction while building his company, Stark Industries, into the best weapons manufacturer in the world. And it's not until Tony is almost killed with his own weapons and he sees the innocent bloodshed that they cause in the Middle East that he then decides to use his gifts and his talents and his wealth in a more righteous way, kind of like Batman. Mm -hmm. They both have awesome mansions with these superhero basement layers, and they uh, both have similar love interests. But the main difference between Bruce Wayne and Tony Stark is their personalities, whereas Bruce keeps his identity secret and uses his billionaire persona as like a cover Tony wanted the entire world to know who he is, and Tony is obviously still filled with that hubris, whereas Bruce is filled with humility. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the best place to get your movie posters and has been for years. They've been great to work with. They're sponsoring all of our movie poster giveaways. Right now, we have a very special one on a limited edition 40th anniversary Star Wars poster that's worth $150, so you better enter that contest before it's over. It ends this week, so go enter on the YouTube channel. They offer great options like original designs, framing, backlight, canvas, even plaque designs. Use coupon code raiders 15 to get 15% off your order at movieposters.com, and now's the time of year because it is the holiday season. Also, one of the biggest differences between uh, the film version of Iron Man and the comic book version of Iron Man is Jarvis, and in the comic books, Jarvis is actually Tony Stark's loyal butler, and he's, he's always been a part of his life and helped raise him after his parents died. But the Marvel execs were worried that it would draw too many comparisons to, to Batman when they made the film, and so they changed Jarvis and turned him into a, an artificial intelligence computer. So they would keep away from the idea that it was kind of ripping off as of if, Batman. As if everything else I just said isn't a ripoff of Batman. <laughs> <laughs> a little less subtle. <laughs> but also one thing that you said that actually is only true to the movies, um, and when and that is that Iron is that Tony Stark wanted the world to know that he was Iron Man, and that's not how it happened in the comic books, and that wasn't actually Marvel's initial idea and plan for the MCU. The MCU execs when they were and pre-production on these films, they had the plan that every superhero would still uh, keep their secret identity, which is how it is in the comic books most of the time. And at the end of this film, the final scene when Downey when Tony Stark says, I am, I am Iron Man to the press, that was an improvised line that Downey came up with and on the spot, and, and Favreau thought it was a good idea, so they filmed it. And Kevin Feige wasn't sure it would work because their plan was that Tony Stark would have a secret identity. No one would know he was Iron Man. Same thing with all the other superheroes. And then they decided to keep this line in it. And it worked so well, especially at the end of the the film. And it changed the plans for the MCU where secret identities weren't important anymore. They didn't want to include secret identities at all. because, And then that's why Thor doesn't have his alter ego in, in the Thor films. And that's why Steve Rogers is known by the public right away. And so they did away with secret identities because of um because of Robert Downey Jr's improvised line what would thor's secret identity be like it's in, like, like something edwards it's a it's a human is he like a, a gym owner because he's It's so kind of like clark kent he has like some normal job yeah, I know we're not we're not huge into the comic books, guys. So we're going mostly on the movies when we talk about these superheroes because that's what this is—it's a movie podcast. So the comic book lore, we dabble in, but we don't know too much about it. So yeah, if there are any comic book fans getting mad at us, I'm sorry. It's just, this is just sorry, it. we're curious. talking about the, we're talking about the movies. Okay, we love you though. But um, so yeah, that's their plan was to always have secret identities until Downey made that line. It's pretty and interesting. I like how they they changed it up because yeah. it works so much better. Mm-hmm. Because again, Tony Stark is the heart. Of the MCU, the current MCU, he's the, he's the lifeblood of it. He gets it beating. He's he's the the book open and end. And he's he's really what made it all so possible in terms of. Obviously, they probably could have pulled it off, but how well they did it and how how successful it was, it probably wouldn't have been the same without Downey. Yeah, and it was always it just worked right when Iron Man sacrificed himself in Endgame to to kill uh, Thanos and and bring everyone back. It just it just seemed right that it would start and end with him. Tony goes through the biggest transformation throughout the MCU films where he starts out as this arrogant villain and then he turns into the ultimate hero and savior of half of the universe. No other character arc is as extreme as his. And we'll talk about throughout this whole trilogy that he constantly goes back and forth with not wanting to be Iron Man, being Iron Man, denying being Iron Man, accepting being Iron Man and the whole trilogy, as well as obviously the Avengers movies, which are kind of subplots to him kind of makes this full circle of, of Tony Stark accepting himself as Iron Man and becoming Iron Man officially. Because although it does happen at the end of the first one, the second and third, he's going back and forth. One of the strengths of Iron Man is that he probably has the coolest suit in the MCU and maybe the coolest suit in all of superheroes. With each film, the suit evolves and the technology changes and advances. And it starts out where he builds the Mark I in a cave with scraps and then by Endgame, he has a suit built out of nanotechnology that just forms around his body. So I love the, the progress and the advancement in th- the technology of his suits throughout the MCU. And Iron Man coincidentally has the most perfect theme song too with Iron Man by Black Sabbath. However, this has nothing to do with the Marvel character. I don't even think Ozzy Osbourne was aware of Iron Man, the, the combo character's existence when he when they wrote that song. And the song is actually about a man who travels through time and sees the end of the world. On his way back to on his way back to Earth to warn the human race, he goes through a magnetic storm and is turned to iron. Nobody believes him about the end of the world, and he gets mad and takes his rage out on the human race, thus bringing about the end of the world that he saw. So the the song is about somebody destroying the planet and destroying Earth, whereas the movie is about somebody saving Earth. So it's kind of funny it's and also ironic. Ironic, yeah. It's funny because I didn't know this, but he, he says he says in the film. The suit's not actually made of iron. It's made of uh, gold uh, titanium. It's like high titanium. Yeah, it's like it's actually it's a, it's a it's a good name. It's not actually iron, but it's like a high titanium alloy. Yeah, and that's what I think uh, sets Iron Man apart from films like uh, The Dark Knight, which it came out in the same year as that film. Where yeah, The Dark Knight is has its comedic moments. It can be pretty funny, but I think uh, Iron Man set the stage for the MCU being uh, very fun and very entertaining. Along with uh, great action and in fun superhero stuff, but it's always just a good time. Yeah, but I think you're not trying to say that it's better than. No, Dark no, Knight. yeah, you're just trying Gun to Nights say that it's, it's a different type yeah. of movie. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, I don't want someone to be like, "Oh, he thinks Iron Man's better than the Dark Knight." What a fucking idiot! No, Dark Knight's best superhero movie ever made. Yeah, so but the way you worded it, I just yeah. want to make sure yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to protect you, man. I'm out for you. Thanks, man. I got I your back. Yeah. I got your back for the trolls. Yes. The Marvel movies are always just a good, fun time, always entertaining, no matter what. And I think that's why. Um, the other studios who own the other MCU characters, they took notice, and that's why Sony made that deal with Marvel to to produce the Spider-Man films together because they knew that what they were doing with Spider-Man wasn't really working. In they wanted to tap into that Marvel treasure trove of of talent and ideas, and also with 20th Century Fox uh, making the new deal with the Fantastic Four, so that um, Marvel is going to produce the new Fantastic Four films and the new X-Men films. So. Thank God, because yeah. how do they just keep ruining the Fantastic Four every time? They just make it worse and worse. That last one was real bad. Oh, <laughs> dude, that was straight up. dumpster garbage. I had to fast forward through it. Holy crap, that movie sucked. <laughs> <laughs> but, they, but these studios, they understand. So they were always trying to make as many as they could so they wouldn't lose the rights. And so I think that pressure forced them to maybe not go in the right directions. And then they're seeing that. I think the difference with Marvel is that Marvel is a company filled with the people who created these characters. And they're obviously extremely passionate about these characters. That's why they work at Marvel rather than a production company. And so I think that Marvel is so successful because the people that work there are so passionate and know so much about these characters rather than Sony hiring a uh, couple of successful screenwriters who had a big hit last year to write the new Spider-Man movie. You know what I mean? I think it's kind of similar to how last episode we were talking about Pixar and the relationship between Disney and Pixar and how it was so distant and troubled at first and they didn't really want to work together until Disney saw what Pixar was doing and saw the passion and and the knowledge and what they were bringing to the table. And that's when they created that partnership. And then even when uh, Pixar renegotiated for a 50-50 split of everything, that uh, Disney was totally on board because Disney was was like, you guys know what the hell you're doing. You have this new direction, and it's clearly resonating with audiences, so you do your thing. We're just going to give you some money, and we'll take (laughs) half of everything. One of the main reasons for Marvel's success is due to the fact that Kevin Feige has been overseeing the entire MCU, and I think that since he obviously... Has always been so passionate about the Marvel characters and comic books. the The guy started as a, an assistant at Marvel, just getting coffee for the executives. You know what I mean? And then he worked his way up to being the the, the creative um, director of the, of the film division, and then he oversaw the entire arc of each phase of the Marvel MCU. And I think that having someone involved who's not just a movie producer he's he's an intense fan and loves these characters in these comic book stories so much that I don't think that anyone else could have pioneered the success of Marvel in as good a way as he did yes yeah, nothing short of astounding what what uh Feige h- helped create and how he was a main architect of it all but let's also not forget that John Favreau is kind of an unsung hero in the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the current MCU and what he did for this franchise especially with Iron Man and Iron Man 2 and how he's been integral to helping create what what they've done with the MCU. It set the stage for every Marvel movie going forward. And the thing with the MCU is if it got off to a rocky start, it wouldn't have worked out. Because what happened was the way they went independent is Marvel took out a loan for $525 million. And they literally put all their characters on as collateral for this loan. And this loan gave them that amount of money over seven years in order to produce a few independent films. And so they decided to make Iron Man 1 and 2, and Captain America. If if Iron Man had failed at the box office, they obviously would have made the other two, but they probably wouldn't have made enough profit to make uh, Thor and then the, the next couple of movies. So everything was on the line to make Iron Man successful. And if it, if Iron Man had even just become maybe moderately successful, like $300 million box office, it probably still it, it might not have worked still. It needed to really become a huge hit of uh, over half a million dollars for marvel to really get enough power behind it to keep driving the movies forward and so everything was on, on the line for them and a lot of people always wonder how did john favreau the guy from swingers get iron man one how did he get to direct this and what happened was he was in with the marvel crew he he was in daredevil the one with with ben Affleck. he was his like buddy in that and then he made elf and elf was an immense success it went down and still is one of the best christmas holiday movies ever made so he was riding high off that success and you know again he had the foot in the door with the marvel execs and he he, also made the film zathura after elf which had a lot of uh, cgi and sci-fi elements to it so it showed that he can make a film with a lot of cgi special effects in it yeah so they gave him a shot and he knocked it out of the park and obviously he did two but he didn't do number three and he went on to make the jungle book lion king the mandalorian he's disney's guy now Pretty amazing. But also, like, he wrote Swingers, and he wrote um, another film that he starred in. So he's always been a storyteller all the way back to before he was even known as an actor. You're so money, man. You're so money, so baby. You're so money, baby. so money baby you do not even know how even money know you are. You and he's know. also, he has a great guest spot in The Sopranos playing himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> Favreau's been around. He, he, I'm sure he knows a lot of people in Hollywood, and he's been working in the industry for decades. Let's get into the, the filmography. First, we have Iron Man, which was released in May 2008. Directed by John Favreau, written by Mark Fergus, Hawk Ostby, Art Markham, and Matt Holloway. The film stars Robert Downey Jr., Terrence Howard, Jeff Bridges, and Gwyneth Paltrow. The film grossed $585 million on a budget of $140 million. Billionaire playboy genius engineer Tony Stark is kidnapped during one of his company's weapons presentations and held captive in an Afghan cave to create his demonstrated weapon against his will. In order to escape, he creates himself weaponized body armor. After his return home, he is determined to perfect the suit in order to protect the people from harm. Iron Man is still in my top five of MCU Infinity War universe uh, Marvel movies because it's just still it's such a good movie. It's a great origin story. Um, it blew away, it blew away my expectations because I didn't know much about Iron Man or Tony Stark. I've always been like a DC guy. I've always been you know Batman, Superman, cliche kind of thing and but Iron Man is everything you want in a superhero movie, and again, this came out two months before The Dark Knight. And not many people knew much about it outside of the comic book world, and most audiences grew up the same way we did. Batman, Superman. I mean, even Blade was more popular at the time than Iron Man. Yeah, sure. Blade, people love Blade, and I mean, the opening of this movie is great. The first act's phenomenal. It's got a great villain, great climax, and I just love this movie. It's it still holds up. It's a timeless film. Yeah, and I think the tone is what people really what really resonated with people because Favreau opens this film with the shot of the desert, and then you hear ACDC. And it's just all of a sudden, Tony Stark's being funny, and it's just very entertaining, where we were so used to superhero movies before Iron Man. It was it was Blade, it was uh, Sin City, The Spirit, uh, Daredevil, X-Men, Batman Begins. They All these movies, they were pretty serious. Um, I, I, you could say Fantastic Four was a little more light, but still it wasn't very good. And so... Superhero movies weren't just, they weren't very funny. You know what I mean? They were, they were cool, but they weren't a lot of fun. And so I think right away, Favreau had this vision for the film to just be a lot of fun and and filled with laughs to, to not just entertain you with the visuals, but uh, and entertain you comedy wise. And I think that's the first takeaway you see right away with this film. And in the opening, we get a great taste of Tony Stark and we, we learn his character. He's chatting with those soldiers in the Humvees he's clearly the fun v yeah the fun v <laughs> he's clearly <laughs> incredibly famous he's borderline rock star he's also very arrogant a womanizer he's hysterical um so you, you really get a sense of who tony stark is in this opening scene yeah and the first thing we see of tony is his hand holding a glass of scotch which is uh showing that he is obviously a, a borderline alcoholic he probably isn't an alcoholic and again he's relatable because of these characters flaws character flaws he's an alcoholic arrogant traumatic past narcissistic abandonment so that makes you kind of love him even more in a weird sadistic way yeah and then there's that really intense attack where all the Humvees are are attacked from this invisible enemy that we can't see and Tony runs away and then he ends up getting blown up by one of his own missiles that is the uh, the cause of shrapnel being stuck in his chest yeah it's ultimate irony of a weapons manufacturer being blown up by his own weapons yeah, it was a, it's a great opening, and it really set the stage for uh, the plot of the film. And I love how they went from this scene to the flashback 36 hours earlier at Las Vegas during that convention. I thought it was a great way to show, first of all, the set up the story that we're about to see, but then uh, Favreau flashes back to set up the character more so. Yeah, so even more character on Tony Stark and his Playboy ways. He's, he's missing it from that conference presentation of an award about him for him. He uh, has a stripper pole on his plane, he drinks sake for breakfast, he builds weapons for the military, and it seems that all Tony cares about is his personal pleasures, is his is his fame, his celebrity, his, his bank account, and just making the most destructive weapons possible. Yeah, I mean, he has Pepper purchase a Jackson Pollock painting just for no reason at all, just to have it, you know what I mean? So he obviously has, money is no object to him, and he seems to just be spending money just to do it. And so, and obviously, he, he's a very selfish guy. All the important people in his life, they're stuck at the white wayside, whether it be Abadiah Stane, who's always uh, apologizing for Tony and kind of babysitting him. And then there's Rhodey, who's just this kind of forgotten friend who's always trying to pick up the pieces uh, that Tony leaves behind. And then there's Pepper, who she is very much like Tony's babysitter, um, always cleaning up after him. And he literally can't tie his shoes without her. And the great thing about this movie is we have four great actors giving great performances. I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow is a high-caliber actress. Uh, Jeff Bridges is the dude. Come on, he's such a great actor. Terrence Howard's a great actor. He was nominated for an Oscar the year before for Hustle and Flow, I believe. And then obviously, RDJ is phenomenal, too. So we had, you know, these superhero movies are now introducing high caliber actors and actresses into their stories and these characters are all very unique i mean they could have easily had made the mistake and made all these characters also very funny and like have similar qualities and similar lines but they're all very different and i mean even terrence howard he's just like this conservative very straight arrow kind of um uh air force captain or lieutenant whatever he is and then jeff bridges as uh, obadiah stain Seems very intelligent. He seems like a loyal friend to Tony because of his history with his father. And then Pepper Potts is, like you just said, always apologetic, always taking care of Tony babysitting him. Yeah, I mean, I think they established right away that Marvel was interested in in quality talent, not just like the hottest actors around, whereas they had two Oscar winners in the leads of this film. It's pretty amazing. This is one of my favorite Jeff Bridges roles because I can't, I can't think of any other movies where he's the villain. And he plays, uh, oh, Tron Legacy. He plays such a great villain in this. Because even as Abadiah, there's still that quality of just lovability about Jeff Bridges that he can't help but exude in some way. And he does seem like a great friend. Uh, he was his father's partner. And so he seems like a, a trustworthy father figure to Tony. And Jeff Bridges, being Jeff Bridges, exudes so much charisma. And then, But then to see him take his turn as the villain antagonist of the film, I think it was a lot of fun. I'm sure Jeff Bridges had fun doing it. And I, he actually surprised everyone by shaving his head and growing the beard. It was a choice that he made personally about the character. Yeah, he's sensational. He's got a great beard, by the way. But aside from having a great head of hair, too, man, yeah. the guy's got some good genes going on. And uh, obviously, we're wishing him the best with his with his cancer diagnosis. And hopefully, Jeff Bridges comes out on top stronger than ever. But he's again, it's great to see him as a villain. I love seeing, like, normally— uh, good-hearted character actors playing villains like Matt Damon when he's a villain in Interstellar. It's so fun to see. In the first, the first 45 minutes of this film, he seems, like you said, like a great friend to Tony and, and like a, a family member almost. And he doesn't go out there screaming, I'm the villain, I'm the villain, look at me, I'm this dark, sinister person, which is very effective and keeps the audience guessing like who's in control of everything and really who the enemy is. We get the occasional evil stare from Obadiah, but we think he's just kind of just a greedy guy wants to make money. We don't think he'd actually try and hurt Tony or kill Tony. And it's actually really fun to see this creation of a supervillain, unlike Tony who develops the suit to protect people. Abedal builds the builds his suit for power and greed because all he really cares about is more power and the stock price of Stark of Stark Industries. Yeah, it's an origin story for both of them, both Iron Man and Iron Monger. Then we cut back to Tony in Afghanistan and he's he he wakes up in that cave and. He, he finds that magnet on his chest and he, he meets Yinsen, the other prisoner in the cave, who tells him that th- there are pieces of shrapnel in his chest and the magnet is keeping the them from moving closer to his heart and penetrating the heart and killing him. And yeah, another great I- ironic moment for this character in the story is this technological super genius being kept alive by an old car battery and crude power wire. So it's really interesting to see how vulnerable Tony Stark has become despite being again this advanced genius and one of the greatest strengths i think in iron man in this film particular is when and where favreau decides to use special effects in the cgi because generally in superhero movies big effects movies Towards the end of the first act, which is where we are now, you're getting a lot of special effects and a lot of action and stuff like that. And you generally will see a ticked up tick up in that special effects, but not an Iron Man. Instead, we see a drastic dip to almost no special effects in this portion of the film, mostly practical effects. When, you know, when Tony's in this cave being forced to build, what do you think, what? Uh, his captors think is the Jericho missile, but he's secretly building something else entirely. He's working with crude materials and scraps. He's on the verge of death every day. And it truly shows the genius of Tony Stark and what he could really do if he thought outside of the box of just weapons. And this sequence is also an example of Tony Stark uh, enduring punishment. He, he, he experiences brutal, brutal punishment and torture at the hands of these terrorists. And in a way, he's, he could be atoning for his, the sins of his life by going through this t- punishment every day, that m- combined with seeing his missiles and his weaponry in the hands of terrorists, which killed American soldiers and then have also been killing innocents around the region, is the big turning factor for, for Tony Stark to, to think about the legacy he's leaving behind as a weapons dealer and manufacturer and the impact he's putting on the world. And this is a, a big, uh, important moment for him as a character. Yeah, and he builds the first arc reactor and builds that crazy cool iron suit, which is the Mark One. Yeah, the Mark One. It's so cool to see. It's a great scene when he escapes. Unfortunately, Yinsen doesn't make it, but Tony does escape with this crazy huge robot, this crazy huge iron suit. This is like obviously the iron, the real iron suit. And it's badass and it's a great scene. It's actually a real practical effect, the suit that Stan Winston, who did the dinosaur animatronics in jurassic park he created the suit for this and the the plan was to the filmmakers in favro didn't think they would have a, a suit to film they they had stan winston to, they were like build the suit for us so we can film it and then we'll cgi when the suit actually moves but winston figured out a way to actually have the actor in the suit and perform with it and winston and his crew actually brought the suit into onto set and surprised the filmmakers by having the actor Move around in the suit And they were completely astonished That the suit actually move, actually moved practically And what what happens next is We get a complete character transformation Of Tony upon his return To humanity In the western hemisphere And to America And he's overcome with humility After his escape And what happens is Tony holds his press conference And it's a really funny scene Where he has all the reporters sit down And he got a, a burger from Burger King And He got like four burgers Yeah And the reason why he has the burger is because in real life, Downey had a a life-altering moment with the Burger King cheeseburger in terms of when he was struggling with drug addiction, he once purchased a a ton of drugs and and then went to Burger King and got a burger. He took a bite of the burger and and he he found it to be so disgusting that he threw all the drugs out into the trash and decided that he needed to change his life around. And so that's why he... He had the filmmakers put in the scene with the the Burger King cheeseburger. And Tony decides that he's going to shut down the weapons program. Obviously, Obadiah isn't happy about this, but he's now trying to take a more righteous path in life to use his gifts for the greater of humanity rather than bringing more death, which is all he's been doing his whole life. And we get the great montage of a superhero becoming a superhero. And... Building his suit and his layer, and we have a ton of great funny moments with him and his his artificial intelligence computers and, and the robots. In the in the flight simulations and in the tests, and it's a really great little montage of him getting building himself up to be an Iron Man. And we have the awesome test of the suit where he he flies all the way in, up into the sky as high as he can go. And uh obviously where he gets the icing problem, which is a foreshadow for the end of the film, but he obviously survives and it's super happy and fun, and then he he paints it and then He's about to go take it out for his first test spin. While this is happening, Tony's decision has put a lot of strain on his relationships with Obadiah and with Rhodey because Obadiah obviously is upset that the stock dropped fifty-six points, which is a lot for a stock to drop. Yeah, they have the the money the money guy the TV show. He's like, yeah. "That's a weapons manufacturer that doesn't, doesn't make, make weapons." weapons. <laughs> sell, sell, sell. <laughs> and so he's obviously concerned about the future of his company. And then Rhodey is is upset because Stark is the main um, supplier of weapons to the U.S. military. And so now they're not going to be getting Stark Industries weaponry anymore, which is the best in the world. And so Tony is sacrificing uh, two of his most important relationships in order to pursue this new goal. One of the best parts of the movie, I think, is when he finally tests out the suit in action in his first mission, which is great. And we get one of my favorite effects, I think, in the marvel universe or i had seen in years is the heads-up display the hud of iron mm-hmm. man in the suit and it's one of my favorite parts of the films and i thought it was cool special effects when i first saw it for the first time because this animation it shows several different things in a shot it shows the camera is steady while the hud moves perfectly with his head the lights are reflecting his face and his eyes and he either knows when or where to look where he can see pepper if she's coming in on a call and they filmed this with downey In front of a green screen, obviously, using a 65 millimeter wide-angle lens up close to create that almost fisheye-warped effect with a wide-angle lens to make us feel like we're in the helmet with Iron Man, with Tony Stark. And then they would shine different colored lights onto his face, depending on what would be coming up on the HUD, on the heads-up display. And then they obviously CGI'd all those graphics in front of his face, and then they geniusly reflected those ref- those graphics in his eyes to see the reflection of the graphics that's a great effect and it's a brilliant way to to show tony inside the suit because how else how are you going to film an actor wearing a helmet it's it's otherwise it's going to be like the mandalorian where it just you don't even see his face at all until maybe uh, maybe like eight eight episodes in i think well I think they probably I'm sure thought of doing the typical like POV of like what yeah. he sees and like with the targeting system but it's so much funner to see Downey, and because he's such a good actor and getting his reactions and his facial expressions, it works so well. But I'm sure it was very complicated and they had to be really well planned with what was going to be coming up on the HUD. Imagine having to act with the camera literally right on your face <laughs> and you don't know what's going to come up. It's like, oh yeah, pretend there's some shit over here and it's going to be right, oh, here's Pepper's face and there's, yeah, this guy over there. Feels like only Downey can do that and pull it off. But I I think you're right. That is also one of my, my favorite parts about the movie and it became a synonymous part of the Iron Man character being able to see that that incredibly close shot within the helmet. We can see the true power of the Iron Man suit and, and all of its uh, abilities where he takes out this outfit of, of terrorists and, and their tank like they're nothing, and it was no problem at all. That leads to uh, another great uh, action sequence with the the two fighter jets and how Rhodey's like, on the phone with them because he's, tr- he's trying to call Rhodey to tell them to, to stop shooting at him or stop trying to attack him and everything. The CGI in this movie is generally very good, there's just some parts that I think don't hold up as well as it used to are where um, Tony's like pretty much putting the suit on wherever his mask is off while wearing the suit because I think the CGI, as advanced as it was at the time, when it's with a human body, it doesn't look quite up to snuff with today's uh, CGI. So I don't think it it's as timeless as the rest of the CGI in the film is. That's actually the reason why... They stuck with just filming in 35 millimeter because Favreau wanted to film in IMAX like Nolan was doing for The Dark Knight, but um, they decided that the CGI wasn't good enough uh, quality to to work within an IMAX shot because there's so much um, information in an IMAX shot where the quality of the image is extremely higher than just regular film, and so the the CGI would have w- looked worse with IMAX footage, and so they they stopped the idea of shooting an IMAX for that exact reason. And Downey, he's one of the best physical actors of our time. He's basically a modern-day Charlie Chaplin, because, I mean, he played Charlie Chaplin. But what that means is he has complete control over his body, and he uses this skill very effectively in the film, in Iron Man, with the suit. Um, especially, I think, the scene where uh, Obadiah eventually removes his reactor from his chest, and he's, he's dying, and he's trying to get down to his basement. He's incredibly great at showing you that he really is dying. You think that he's dying. He looks like he weighs a thousand pounds and mm-hmm. he's such a great physical actor as well, which I think a lot of people don't know. Yeah, and Obadiah shows his true colors as the true villain of this film and he even kills the leader, Raza, of the terrorists with that crazy paralyzing sonic effect, that little device he has. And when he does it to to Tony, uh, it's him finally revealing himself to almost like someone who was like a son to him. And so it to kill to be able to do this to Tony showed us that Ebediah is a truly evil person and it sets up great stakes when he we see that he has finally finished his own suit and this film has a great climax it's got a great ending where Tony he eventually uses his old reactor that he made inside that cave which was framed in a, in a glass container by pepper that says proof that Tony has a heart to, that proof that Tony Stark has a heart and he uses that to reboot up and puts on his suit and he goes and he has to go save pepper and everybody from obadiah who is at stark industries and he activates his mega super suit which is again it's not conservative like tony it's enormous and powerful and it's it's a really great battle to really great fight because obadiah's suit is clearly more powerful than tony's iron man suit but he did um but he hasn't had as much experience in the field so they don't know all the pro- so he doesn't know any of the problems that tony experienced when he took his out on the field yeah and the greatest example is the icing effect when they fly that too high of an altitude and ice builds up upon the suit where that's the reason why uh, tony changed the the element of his suit to, to to gold titanium alloy to prevent icing and moisture building up and that's one of the main reasons why he gets an upper hand over ironmonger but it's a great fight it's a great battle yeah, so Pepper and, and Tony save the day, and they kill Obadiah and blow his ass up inside that giant <laughs> reactor. And we have the great iconic ending where you know he's doing another press conference, and Coulson from Shield is giving him the talking points. And Tony gets up there, and he's he's insinuating that the reporters asked if he was a superhero, and they when they didn't. And then he, the <laughs> iconic line at the end of the movie where he reveals that he is Iron Man. I am Iron Man. It's a, a great ending, and it's iconic. And this set the stage for the MCU. And the character arc and transformation of Tony is the greatest part of Iron Man and what makes it not only the best in the trilogy, but one of the best MCU movies, in my opinion. Downey's power within the MCU obviously evolved and and exploded after this film. For example, for Avengers Endgame, Robert Downey Jr. earned $50 million for his role. But for Iron Man 1, he only made $500,000. John Favreau, he celebrated getting the job as director by going on a diet and losing 70 pounds. Actually, yeah, he looks great in this movie. He also played, yeah, he plays a uh, Happy Hogan his, uh, his driver. Yeah, he looks real slim in Iron Man 2 as well. And if you look closely in one of the garage scenes at Tony's house, you can see Captain America's shield is sitting on his desk. Next up is Iron Man 2, released in 2010, directed again by John Favreau, written by Justin Thoreau. The film stars Robert Downey Jr. Mickey Rourke, Gwyneth Paltrow, Don Cheadle, Scarlett Johansson, Sam Rockwell, and Sam Jackson. This film had a budget of $200 million and had a worldwide box office of $623 million. While trying to keep his declining health secret, Tony Stark is the center of the public's eye with the government trying to gain access to the technology to his Iron Man suit. With the pressure on, Tony is faced with a man with a vendetta against the Stark's late father. Iron Man 2 is a great follow-up. And a very important film in the MCU because uh, this film had the most prevalent use of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, they were very much implemented into this film, especially with Nick Fury and with the Black Widow. Yeah, it's a very good movie. It's a good sequel. Um, Not quite up there with the original, and I think the third film's better. But it does get a lot of hate, but I think that's kind of unwarranted. And a lot of people think it's bad, but you got to remember what you're comparing it to. Iron Man 2, it's very funny, it has great special effects, decent plot, and it's a, it's a, basically a vehicle and a setup tool of Marvel to expand their universe. And the biggest weakness for me is kind of like this reversion of Tony Stark to being kind of this hyper-arrogant asshole persona again, despite the immense character change that he just went through in the first film. This is obviously fun and hysterical, his sarcasm is obviously one of the best parts of the film, but I thought it was a little repetitive. Another weakness is Marvel trying to fit in the like these pieces of puzzles for the future of the Avengers and the Marvel Universe, and they kind of force this like all these other subplots and characters into the script to again use this as a vehicle to open up the possibilities of other characters in the Avengers eventually and Shield. Yeah, this was actually the reason why Jon Favreau didn't make the third Iron Man was because he had such a, a disastrous time making this between. Uh, his own story plans and and the Marvel executives plans for shield and the Avengers movie where they were really forcing him to include a lot of setup for the Avengers film um, with shield, with Nick Fury and with uh, Natasha Romanoff and Favreau kind of wanted to tell his own story, but he was pretty much battling with Marvel the entire time, even though, I mean, I I understand what Marvel's doing, but also like this guy made Iron Man, let him do what he wants. You know what I mean? So I think uh, the story but all in all, it's a good movie. I think that people might be a little too hard on it. Obviously, like you said, because the first one is so great. But it's still a solid film. It's got great villains and a pretty compelling story. And again, it's I think that they took an interesting turn where they... I actually like the the downfall of Downey's per, of uh, Tony Stark in this film because um, it showed uh, that he's still struggling with alcoholism. And I think it's an important facet of the character to not just... Uh, Stray away from it for the rest of the his, his arcs. Yeah, I'm not saying his downfall. I just mean his, like, asshole mentality. Mm-hmm. But um, also, Iron Man, that screenplay was written by the people who wrote Children of Men, which I think won an Oscar for Best Screenplay, and also a BAFTA-nominated writer of Big Fish. Whereas Iron Man 2 just has the writer of Justin Thoreau, who, yeah, Tropic Thunder was really good and funny. Good script. Not saying that he's a bad writer, but, like, the guy, that's his only writing credit besides this movie. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, maybe the writing struggled a little bit there. But it's, it's a good movie. I like it a lot. We're introduced to new villains. Uh, first and foremost, Justin Hammer, played by Sam Rockwell, who's awesome in this film. And in one of my favorite parts of the movie because... This is an important movie for Sam Rockwell because we needed him. I wanted him to get seen by mainstream audiences. Like, I'd been watching him in indie films for a while. I mean, Moon was great, but that made $9 million at the box (laughs) office, so let's not pretend people saw that movie. Because Sam Rockwell is so talented, which obviously we all now know because he's won an Oscar. Uh, But I would have liked to see Hammer be the main villain of this movie rather than Vonko, Ivan Vonko, played by Mickey Rourke, a.k.a. Whiplash. That's actually not a bad idea where they could have had uh, Hammer... Maybe pr- produce and build this maybe incredible arsenal of weaponry to go against Iron Man. That wouldn't be. It's actually pretty ra- interesting. Not bad. You should have written it. Nah, I should have written. That's too bad, man. I <laughs> no, was, but I was busy in 2010. But I think they wanted uh, someone to uh, stand up to Iron Man. And Ivan Vonko is still a, a really good character. Mickey Rourke, obviously coming off of the wrestler, was very much in demand, and he did he did a great job with this role. What I think they were trying to do was make an. an antagonist to Tony Stark and an antagonist to Iron Man so I think that Justin Hammer is kind of like Tony Stark he's very similar to him you know he's very wealthy intelligent so he's like that persona a villain and then Whiplash and Ivan Vanko is Iron Man's uh, anti-hero and an- Iron Man's uh, antagonist and also I think Ivan Vanko uh, produces the opportunity for uh, that Tony's history and Tony's past to, to come up against him in terms of uh, uh, Vanko's father was uh, partners with Howard Stark, and they actually designed the arc reactor together. And Ivan Vanko actually has his father's blueprints of the arc reactor, which is how he's able to to build and construct his own arc reactor um, by himself, similar to how Tony Stark did it. And I think it's uh, it's important for for Stark to, to confront his past. I think that's one of the main themes of this film, to com- confront your past and, and your, where you come from and to overcome that. And we learn more about Howard Stark and his past from that secret message in the video that um, he leaves for Tony to find. And, you know, it's great to get more backstory on our characters, which again is what you want from a sequel, you new characters, and more backstory on the original characters. Yeah. And then the other main conflict that Tony's facing in this is the his uh, his friction with the American government. And I think it's pretty accurate that I think this would happen in real life where the American government um, is very concerned about the Iron Man suit because they view it as uh, in a, a in a very advanced weaponized uh, suit of armor that can be used for warfare, and the American government wants to take control of it rather than allowing Tony Stark to to use it privately on his own on his own terms. And they're also worried about the fact that other nations, especially rivals to America, are trying to create their own Iron Man suits. Although Tony's points out that. They're all doing an awful job with it, and, and none of them are working out. and And Tony's confident that no one else will be able to really construct a suit like this for at least ten years or so. But he is. It's a great scene where he has that hearing um, with the Senate, the Senate um, Congressional hearing. I think it's definitely something that would really happen with the American government in real life. I think it's similar to those Howard Hughes press conferences with the mm-hmm. the, the Senate hearings too. Um, and just back on Whiplash, real quick. I I didn't. He didn't get that much action as like you thought he would like he has that cool scene at the racing event where he tears the cars apart and we see his like superhuman um whip lashes i guess (laughs) (laughs) lashes his arc his arc lashes his whips which are cool and um it's interesting but i mean the biggest fight scene he's involved in is he's hacking these iron man suits and he's really just behind a computer for the most part and it, it seemed like less of a threat to tony stark and iron man compared to Obadiah in the first one and other Marvel villains. I mean, even Hammer is a bigger antagonist, I think, in this film than Whiplash. But I think they, if they switched it and made, again, Hammer the main villain with Whiplash being controlled by Hammer, I think that would have been more effective. I think that they kind of put too much into the first half of this film where the third act, and especially the climax of the film, kind of fell a little short of expectations. For example, that the race in France... Which is pretty unrelated to the plot, but it looks like they put a lot into that—a lot of money and resources to to creating that intense Formula One race. Where I think by the by the second half of the film, they didn't really have much uh, as much money to to put behind creating a giant action set piece because they had already spent so much resources on that uh, first act, and so I think that that's why the ending of the film yeah, was on like a creek. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's why it's at like a, a nice little park. But I think, I mean, overall, it still works, but I think they did uh, miss their mark a little bit. But I think one of the shining highlights of this film is obviously the introduction of Black Widow. Um, and ScarJo is fantastic in this role. She starts out as this notary assistant, and she seems like obviously smart but very innocent. And then when she pulls out the Black Widow outfit and she's going to town on those security guards it's a great introduction to the character with this film you get even a, a great little peek at who she really is when the ceiling comes down and then she gets into like a defensive fighting position but then pepper Potts is like oh get me the fuck out of here <laughs> so it's actually like a little, a little that's true sneak. yeah and then um obviously iron man 2 is where we get the replacement of don cheeto in the spot Cheeto. <laughs> <laughs> did i say cheeto yeah you should keep that in <laughs> it's kind of funny Iron Man Two is where we get the replacement of Don Cheadle as Rhodey with the uh, the basically the firing or axing of Terrence Howard because what happened was Terrence Howard was top billing and got paid the most in Iron Man One. He got paid four point five compared to what you said he uh, down he made five hundred thousand. Yeah, he was just coming off an Oscar nomination. That means you're gonna get paid a lot. So um, he was in he was obviously in demand and he did great as Rhodey in Iron Man One, but uh, he didn't sign a contract that would make him get paid $4.5 million for three pictures. He signed a three-picture contract, but I don't think it was binding, which means that they could just not bring him back if they didn't want to, so they didn't have to meet any offers or, or match any offers that, that him and his agent brought to the table. But also, you know, you, you read different reports of what happened from his side and then obviously Tony's side and the studio side. I mean, Downey's side and then the studio side. And, you know, you hear the, the rumors that he was tough to work with with Marvel, but also, you know, Downey ended up taking, I think... million for Iron Man 2 so he got a hefty pay increase whereas Marvel offered Taron Tower just $1 million which is obviously a slight but I'm sure they probably did it knowing that he'd want to leave or something like that too so maybe they wanted to recast him but wanted to make it seem less um, publicly like they cut him or fired him make it seem more amicable. But, you know, it's still, it's, it still sucks what happened to him being offered such a low-ball offer. But it is what it is. It's part of the business. It's just unfortunate. But Don Cheadle's, Don Cheadle's great. Yeah, and apparently Don Cheadle was only given a few hours to accept the role because they offered him the role um, on the day of Comic-Con. And they were like, okay, we want you to play this role. If you say yes, sign the contract and we're flying you to Comic-Con right now. And so he decided, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll sign on. And then they literally flew him to San Diego. That's a pretty good offer for Don Cheadle because I mean I'm sure he's, he you make that Marvel money after that because once it's been seven now I think and the Something Avengers like movies all these actors got very wealthy yeah yeah and I think they were very smart with how they introduced him in this film where Don Cheadle literally says to Tony I'm here get over it let's just move on so that's literally him addressing the audience saying get over it let's just do the film. I also there's something about this film I really like is where they they bumped up the role of Pepper Potts where they gave her more to do. She was less just like the assistant of Tony Stark. Obviously, she has that that really tense scene um, in Iron Man one where she's uh, downloading the the files that she's basically hacking into in Tony's office with with Obadiah there. But she in Iron Man two she gets a lot to do and, and she's obviously they're building her relationship with Tony Stark as well. Yeah, but their their relationship is becoming strained because Tony's down falling down this downward spiral. Of, of alcohol and he's not being honest he, he won't tell anyone that he's actually dying from blood poisoning from the palladium inside of his chest and so the one of the biggest conflicts with tony is that he's trying to find a new element that can power his arc reactor without poisoning his blood and he's, i think he's he's taking his stress and his and his anxiety out on on the bottle And he's questioning again whether or not he even wants to be Iron Man anymore. I mean, he created this godlike weapon, but it does take an insane amount of discipline and humility. And it's taking its toll on him physically and emotionally. And, you know, he felt like he probably feels when he's in the suit, he's invincible. But really, deep down, inside the suit and outside of the suit, Tony's more vulnerable than ever in the deterioration of his health. Shows that, and he's almost—he seems like he's about to die in almost every single scene. Sometimes, and this eventually leads to him building himself up better than ever. Yeah, but this puts another strain on his relationship with Rhodey, where they end up getting in that fight at his birthday party, and Rhodey literally steals the the new suit and brings it to the American government, brings it to the Air Force, and they use the suit um, along with Justin Hammer, and this works for Rhodey because he he appeases the government officials. Um, who wanted the tech in the first place. But uh, also, it's like he's at odds with Tony now, his best friend, and their relationship is very strained. And now he's pretty much allies with Justin Hammer. And we're also getting a great look at mental health and the deterioration of Tony Stark's mental health. And the movie takes it seriously because it is a serious issue that affects a lot of people. And the science does seem a bit far-fetched sometimes in this movie with Tony creating that new element, which is super cool. But I guess they have to, you know, set up for what happens in Endgame when he, you know, spoiler alert, solves time travel... Yeah, yeah. But also it's a, it's a way of him connecting with his, with his father who he spent his entire life thinking his father didn't really care about him and he was very hard on him and he was very cold, but ultimately his father called him his greatest creation and left him the blueprints to create this element. And Howard Stark, you could argue is probably a, a greater genius than Tony Stark because he wrote the blueprints for the arc reactor and for this new element, but he just didn't have the technology in the 60s to be able to carry out his, his ideas and concepts, and so he left them to his son to finish. So you can all, you can argue that Howard Stark was uh, a more brilliant genius than Tony. But while this is happening, Justin Hammer has been having Ivan, what he thinks is building new suits for him, um, to stand up against Iron Man, but Ivan has been instead changing it to drone suits that he can automate aut- automatically pilot from a computer in order to attack Tony because... He wants Tony dead, and so ultimately Ivan's been using Justin just to build new suits. And we have that great ending in third act scene where all the drones basically are being controlled and hacked by um, Ivan Vanko. So at the expo, uh, they reveal that Rhodes is Iron. They reveal that Rhodes is War Machine. This also is where Vanko uses all those armored drones to basically attack the entire crowd and to attack. Uh, Roads, and this is where Tony's gonna have to step in. He and Rhodey end up teaming teaming up, and they they battle all these drones. And we get to see some new tech that Tony's been developing, like that laser that literally cuts all the drones in half. And then uh, Ivan shows up in his own suit that he's been working on, which combines the the original. Uh, arc reactor laced lashes with it, an Iron Man suit, pretty much. And again, yeah, it's a good climax, and they do that, like, uh, Super Saiyan blast and or whatever, <laughs> the Harry Potter Voldemort uh, blast where they shoot each other to blow everything up. But again, it's a little anticlimactic for me because you know Whiplash is again the head villain in this film, and he's in a suit for like 45 seconds to a minute. So mm. I I thought it was a little underwhelming. I would I would have expected him to be more in the fight rather than just at a computer controlling everything. I think that they if they threw something like maybe like a a, a crazy chase throughout the city while flying would have been fun. I think it would have been it just would have been more fun to see uh, obviously more Whiplash action in the final scene. But I mean. I think they kind of ran out of money and resources, so they kind of uh, shot themselves on the foot, I would say. But ultimately, it does end up working, and it gets the job done. And at the end of the debriefing, Fury informs Stark that he's going to just be a consultant of S.H.I.E.L.D. because he's too hard to control, and he's a difficult personality. And they receive medals, obviously, for their heroism. And then we have a great post credit scene of Agent Phil Coulson finding a large hammer at the bottom of a crater in New Mexico. Mexico. Uh Uh-oh. Ooh, Sam Jackson actually uh, almost quit the MCU because he had such a small role in the first Iron Man when he was promised a bigger, more prominent role, and also he wasn't happy with the salary. And so they signed him to a new nine-picture deal and also gave him a lot more screen time in this film to keep him happy. I wonder how much they paid him. I I would say maybe, I would say they maybe paid him $50 million over 10 years. It's a pretty good deal. that. It's a pretty good deal because you don't know what's going to happen. It's pretty good. And there's a scene um, at the expo when the attack happens um, where a little kid wearing an Iron Man hat, an Iron Man helmet is uh, confronted by one of the drones and then Iron Man shows up and and saves the kid. And that's actually a young Peter Parker the entire time. And it was confirmed by Tom Holland that there was always Peter Parker. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. He says, good job, kid. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Next up, we have Iron Man 3, released May 3rd, 2013. Written and directed by Shane Black with co-written by Drew Pierce. The film stars Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow, Don Cheadle, Guy Pearce, Ben Kingsley, and Rebecca Hall. This film earned $1.2 billion on a budget of $200 million. Soon after saving the world from its alien invaders, Tony Stark pours everything into developing improved Iron Man suits while simultaneously dealing with the PTSD of narrowly escaping death a new villain called the mandarin arises and orchestrates several terrorist attacks across the world before coming directly after tony and those that he loves iron man 3 is coming off of avengers so obviously we have this massive scope of a universe now and clearly that's one of the main themes of the film is where you know tony has to improve technology he has to step up his game he has to and he has to push the iron man suits further and see what else he can come up with and again this film is great because this character tony stark as flawed as he is and all the redemption he's gained he's now dealing with ptsd which is a real syndrome and it's really an important thing to to talk about and they do an, an, a phenomenal job of making it one of the main focal points of his character in this movie and with that with the panic attacks and you know again they have Iron Man crying at a restaurant, which is insane. You wouldn't think that happens to a superhero, but it really shows like the real-life effects that something as traumatic as what happened to Iron Man at New York and all those characters that New York could have on a human being. Yeah, and this is Chapter 1 of Phase 2 of the MCU, and this starts out where, I, where Tony is obviously becoming obsessed with creating as many suits and advancing his technology further and further because of the events in New York, and this will ultimately lead to Avengers Ultron where he creates Ultron because he's looking for a way to better protect the world from this gigantic scope of threats we now face. And so this will lead to the creation of Ultron. And I think Iron Man 3, I think it's better every time you watch it. It, it kind of just ages really well and I mean I, I don't think I was super high on it the first time I saw it, but the second and third time I watched it, I liked it more and more. And what's great about it is it's technically a Christmas movie. Like all of Shane Black's movies, they're all Christmas movies, yeah, so always. Shane Black is uh, one of the most important parts of uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s resurrection of his career because he gave him a lead role in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in, I think, 2005, mm-hmm. which was probably his biggest role since he got released from prison. And it's a really good movie. You guys check it out if you haven't seen. It's very funny. Yeah, and I think that's what Shane brings to this film. He brings so much humor. I think you could argue that this is the funniest Marvel movie. I think this and Thor Ragnarok... But, I mean, we watched Iron Man 3 recently, and I was cracking up the whole time. It's really funny. Every joke lands in this movie. It's hysterical at times, and I think that that makes it work so well because it's a lot of fun, even though, obviously, the stakes are high and there's a lot of drama and action. You're you're constantly cracking up at this movie. And I think that Shane Black obviously took um, the character and the story in unexpected directions in terms of the villain. And uh, obviously, the Mandarin. If you we all have seen this, the Mandarin is, is just a front and not a real a villain. And that wasn't the original plan for from the MCU executives. They obviously wanted the Mandarin to be like he is in the comic books. He's kind of like uh, he's kind of like Doctor Strange in a way. Uh, he has superpowers and he's like got ten rings that give him power or something that come from an alien spacecraft. Yeah. But he's also the arch enemy of Iron Man in yeah. the comic books. And he was actually slowly being uh, set up um, in the first Iron Man and the second Iron Man where uh, his terrorist organization are the people that uh, uh, Obadiah hires. Favreau's plan was to have Mandarin be the villain ultimately in this film, but be like the real version, comic book version. But I think Shane Black, um, at first, honestly, I did not like how he how he uh, depicted the Mandarin because the setup and the trailers made the Mandarin seem like this cool, evil, um, giant force of, of, of a villain. But then I think that having the villain be just an actor was a lot of fun and it was such a surprising twist you weren't expecting it I think the the lack of general knowledge on the lore of Iron Man in the comic books let him do that and let him take a chance because I mean that's what Marvel kind of does they take chances they take swings sometimes they miss they generally hit it out of the park and for the average person they had no idea who the Mandarin even was in the Iron Man comic book world so really the people who were most upset about it we're the comic book fans, we're the devout Iron Man fans, which, you know, I totally understand their gripe. They have a right to be upset with it, but again, you know, you either do something exactly as it's in the the comic book or you just flip it on its head entirely to create a splash, which it obviously did create a splash, but we also get another great villain with Guy Pearce in this movie. He's... So good in this movie because Guy Pierce, another underrated actor in my opinion, Australian actor, he's incredibly charming and sinister at the same time as Aldrich Killian. And he's also incredibly nerdy in the beginning of the movie <laughs> with the flashback. Yeah. And uh which is a very funny scene and one of my favorite parts is Happy Hogan's Vincent Vega look with his long hair and that in that funny suit. Oh yeah. And does he have a bolo tie? Yeah, think. Yeah, he yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> really great. And um I think uh yeah, Aldrich Aldrich is a, a great villain. I think he's one of the stronger MCU villains. Ultimately, I think, and but I think my favorite part about this film is that uh, Shane Black had this really great concept of of taking away the suit from from Tony Stark, where Tony Stark spends half this film without his suit, and I think watching him carry out these uh, action scenes and in, in defense and and using his wits, his intelligence, and his knowledge of uh, of science and uh, physics at, uh, in order to defend himself and fight off these uh these bad guys it was a really great way to tell the story because um, the suit has always been his saving grace and to take that away I think was a great choice. Yeah, it's the best part of the film because we're getting more Tony less Iron Man because that's the draw of Iron Man. It's Tony Stark. It's Robert Downey Jr. And it's just like the first one where we get a lot less Iron Man than you would think and we get just more Tony and Seeing Tony down on his luck, being hunted with a busted suit, dragging it around in the snow, completely vulnerable to any attack, needing to hide out and use that kid's garage, it's, it's so great to see. And like you said, he just uses his cleverness and, and, his, and his intellect to escape danger with it, without his suit. The sequences in Tennessee are some of my favorite in all the Iron Man movies because, like you said, we love Tony Stark. And while he's there, he's investigating uh, the extremist compound, and he's, he discovers that these bombings that have been taking place, the fir- one of them obviously put Happy Hogan in the hospital, and he, he learns that uh, the explosions were caused by soldiers who took the extremist compound, but their bodies rejected it and caused them to ex- spontaneously combust. I think the extremist plot was a great choice for this film because it really put up Iron Man against uh, villains who can really uh, handle their own against him and really test him and his powers and damage his suits because they have that like heating effect so they can actually manipulate and and melt the metal of his suits and extremists is basically was an extremist was created by aldrich killian in that beginning flashback at the 1999 new year's Eve party is where killian's trying to um offer uh tony stark to invest in his company and partner with him on this project and clearly um, it, it succeeded because Killian is also now we have the scenes with Pepper Potts where he's trying to again become partners with Stock to offer him to buy this this research and this product basically because what he's done is he's remapped the brain and ch- brain and changed what human beings can do with their, with their potential and there's that great scene and I, I love the special effects in this movie because I think it's better because I think the special effects in Iron Man 1 and 2 are great but this one took it to a next notch and we have the great scene where he's with Pepper Potts in the office and he has that great, the holographic display of his brain and we're going inside of his brain and seeing what Extremis does and it's really cool and also what he's doing is creating super-villains. And extremist also cures disabilities, whereas when Aldrich was at that party, we saw that he had disabilities physically and then extremists cured him of all of these and this is actually how he ropes the Vice President into the extremist scheme by, um, by uh, using the Vice President as a puppet he, in exchange, will cure the vice president's daughter who uh, is missing a leg. And so the extremist compound not only produces super soldiers, but it cures disabilities. What's happening is these explosions are a problem that Killian can't solve. And he doesn't know how to fix extremists. His plan, ultimately, is is he um, injects pepper with the extremist compound as a way to force Tony to get on his side and figure out a way to fix extremists because he puts the woman he loves uh, in danger of the extremist compound. And Rebecca Hall plays Maya Henson, who's a former flame of Tony Stark, but also a scientist. And she's the inventor of this experimental regen- regenerative treatment named extremist. And she works basically for Aldrich Killian. And she's kind of just in stuck in this evil organization that she can't really escape from because she's kind of trapped, but she also wants to keep progressing with her research. And I think originally in the script, she was supposed to be more villainous she was supposed to be the main villain which would have been awesome to see i would have loved to see like a female head villain in an iron man movie yeah that's actually the reason why she signed on to this film because rebecca hall was uh really exploding in hollywood she had just been in uh the chris nolan film prestige Prestige. and a few other films and so uh, i think she signed on to this film as the villain but then script changes made her character more of a a side supporting character to aldrich killian um, I think obviously she was still signed on contract-wise, so she had to be in the film. But I think it, I, I agree, I think it would have been better if she still ended up being the main villain. It would have been uh, fun to see a female villain in the Iron Man films. But she still does a great job, she's a great actress. Tony leaves Tennessee because he discovers that uh, Extremis is located in, in Miami. And this is where we get the best reveal of the movie, where he finds the Mandarin. We, we learn that he's just a British actor named Trevor who is a complete idiot and oblivious to anything that's going on with extremists and Aldrich Killian. He's just literally just doing a job he's been hired to do, and they provide him with women and food and, and drugs. Uh, and, drugs. <laughs> and, you know, I know people think that Ben killing people say Ben Kingsley was wasted in this role and that he, it wasn't big enough for him, but you know what? Ben Kingsley is an incredibly talented guy. I'm sure he had a blast doing this. Yeah, he's never done comedy before. And I thought he was really great. He's so funny in this, and I, I, I love his choice of accent. And I, I think he was hysterical in this film. Yeah, he plays two characters, basically. Mm-hmm. And then Tony's captured by Aldrich, and Aldrich reveals his plan of Extremis and how he's he's injected Pepper with it in order to force Tony to figure out how to solve the problems with Extremis. And then um, Aldrich kills Maya because she's become a threat to him, and then he leaves. And this is a, a great moment where Tony has that great fight scene with the two guards... And he's only gathered, like, literally just, like, a a hand and a boot of his Iron Man suit, and he has to fight them that way. It's a lot of fun. And I love that one security guard. He's like, these people are so weird. I don't even want to be here. (laughs) You you have no idea. (laughs) Then he escapes, and he teams up with Rhodey again, and they figure out that Killian is going after the president on Air Force One. So Tony has to uh, suit up his Iron Man to, to save not just the president, but a dozen other staffers from the plane. It's a great action sequence, and it reminds me of a uh, Superman Returns. But I think they did a lot better job with this saving people from a from a plane. And then they trace Killian to an oil tanker where Killian intends to kill the president on live television. He's like hung up as a sacrif- like a sacrificial lamb to his cause. Tony calls in all of his suits, and then it's literally this battle between uh, Rhodey, uh, Tony. All the suits and all of the extremist soldiers. It's a lot of fun. And Rhodey and Tony working together. Tony goes uh, mano a mano with with Aldrich Killian. And Killian shows that he's also super powered with, with the uh, extremist gene. Aldrich throws Pepper into those flames at the bottom of the, uh, of the ship. And we think she's dead. And it's a, a really uh, devastating moment for Tony. Yeah, I mean, I know that they do two fake outs in this movie basically. And I think one is enough. I don't know if I would have done this with Pepper. I've I i mean I've even seen theories or ideas where people suggested killing off Pepper Potts and maybe making it such a an emotional stain on, on Tony's character and him having to deal with it throughout the Avengers franchise and everything. But, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of having two fake-outs in one movie, but still, you know, it blew my mind. It was cool. It was cool to see Pepper Potts kicking ass. Yeah, it's great when she that. shows up and she literally saves Tony. I thought that—I think that it was fun to see Pepper— be in control and be the savior. And then Tony's kind of the damsel in distress. There's a nice play on the uh, the power play. But it's a great it's a great ending. And uh, ultimately, Tony has been able to move on, perform his PTSD, and he's found peace within himself. And he, just, he instructs Jarvis to destroy all of his suits. Because also the suits in his work is what's been uh, damaging his relationship with Pepper Potts. And by destroying the suits, he's showing that he is committed to Pepper pots and that he loves her and he's showing his devotion to her. Yeah, and he undergoes surgery to remove the shrapnel from his chest and promises pretty much to to scale back his time as Iron Man and he's going to be Tony Stark more than ever. And then he, he still says at the end of the film, uh, pretty much even without his suit of armor, he's still Iron Man. Yeah, so like I said, the entire trilogy is Tony Stark becoming Iron Man dealing with if he wants to be Iron Man, but then accepting who he is as Iron Man. And one of my favorite parts of the film is at the end when when he, the kid goes into the garage and it's all souped up with oh, yeah, all sorts it's real of new sweet. robotics and, and tools and everything. It's really fun. Yeah, it's cute. Every uh, MCU Phase 2 movie has a scene in which a character loses an arm, and this is a reference to uh, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back with Luke. And in this movie, Aldrich Killian loses his arm while fighting Tony. In Thor: The Dark World, Loki cuts off Thor's arm. In Captain America: Winter Soldier, Bucky lost his arm when he fell from the train uh, as a fl- in that flashback sequence. In Guardians of the Galaxy, Gamora cuts off Groot's arm um, when they fight on Xandar. And then in, Ult- in Ultron, in Avengers: Age of Ultron, Ultron cuts off Claw's arm when he's uh, buying vibranium from him. It's all uh. uh a calling card to Luke getting his arm chopped off by Darth Vader. Speaking of vibranium, Black Panther is the only non-Avengers Marvel movie to perform better at the box office than Iron Man 3. Wow. Yeah, it made a billion, right? Yeah, and at the time of its release, it was the 20th highest box office earner in history. I'm not sure where it still is on the list, if it's at 20 or not. No, no way. No way at all. And I think the I think this movie made so much money because Avengers was so loved and successful. Because the first two Iron Mans each made around $600 million. And then this doubled those because of the popularity that Avengers brought to the MCU. And so I think there was more excitement to see this third Iron Man after the Avengers. They also ran a Super Bowl ad as an extended look at Iron Man 3 in the first 25 seconds of the ad. is literally just RDJ just staring into the camera. It's actually pretty funny. That's good. That's funny. All right, that's it for uh, episode 40 on the Iron Man trilogy from Raiders of the Lost podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on an audio streaming platform. Don't forget to subscribe to YouTube if you're on it right now. Leave a comment and a like. Follow us and hit the notifications for all those audio streaming platform apps so you know when we're putting up new episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you enter that Star Wars Limited Edition Empire Strikes Back 40th Anniversary $150 free poster contest. Take care, everyone.